Satan is at work in the church. I don't say that to alarm you or to reveal something new. I certainly don't intend you to look around this morning and try to identify who here this morning is under satanic influence. But if Satan was in the garden, and he was, if Satan incited King David, and he did, if Satan worked in Jesus' disciples, like Judas, most obviously, but also Peter, if Satan was at work in the early church, as we can see in Acts chapter 5, if Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, as the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, if Satan is a deceiver of the whole world, then it's not surprising that Satan would be at work in the church today. Satan not only attacks the church from outside, that's persecution, he also works from inside, trying to subvert, to distract, to corrupt God's church. And Satan is mighty. Our passage today says that Satan's agent comes with all power and false signs and wonders. And as we sang... Still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. That we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing. Satan is at work in the church, and left to ourselves, as Martin Luther wrote so Truly, we cannot overcome him. But, as Luther also wrote, one little word shall fell him. And that word is Jesus. Our passage tells us that Jesus will return and kill Satan's mighty agent with the breath of his mouth. So we can stand firm in Jesus, depending on his word, even when, like the Thessalonians, we are persecuted, even when Satan's corrupting influence seems to seriously damage the church. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Jesus will return, and so we can live today in Confidence. That's the main point the Apostle Paul is making in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Recall that in his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul had written about Jesus' return. A sermon from chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians in, that I preached in February was entitled, What do we need to know about end times and why do we need to know it? Let me remind you of the overall outline, the answers to those two questions. What do we need to know about end times? We need to know that Jesus will return for sure. We need to know that all those in Christ will then be with him forever. We need to know that the time of his return is unknown. 
but it will be sudden and unexpected. And we need to know that all of his opponents will be overwhelmed, will be conquered thoroughly. And we need to know these four points, not to satisfy our curiosity about the future, but we need to know them to help us live rightly today. That's Paul's point. It's a pastoral point. Yes, there are doctrinal truths that he's teaching, but he's making a pastoral point in 1 Thessalonians as well as in 2 Thessalonians. Well, evidently, after Paul wrote that first letter, false teaching about these matters began to have a greater influence in Thessalonica. Indeed, the teaching, some thought, was from the Apostle Paul himself. And so that was one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter. See verses 1 and 2 of our text today, chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, he had written about all of that in 1 Thessalonians, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, you see. Either some were alleging that Paul had written this false teaching, and it was from him. Or maybe someone had drafted a letter and signed it as if it was from the Apostle Paul to present this false teaching. Well, what is the false teaching? To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, that's not a whole lot of description about what this false teaching contained. And we don't really know what it said exactly. It could be spiritualizing Jesus' return and thus saying, well, Jesus has already returned spiritually, and that's what all the prophecies about his return were like, have already been fulfilled. And so there's no future gathering of all those in Christ. There's no future conquest of evil. That's already happened. He's already returned. That's not dissimilar from the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses, the early Jehovah's Witnesses said, Jesus returned in 1914. It's already happened. And he's gathered his, there's this 100,000 of his people that he has gathered. It was a spiritual return, so they claim. Well, in any event, this false teaching has already alarmed and shaken the confidence of the church. And so Paul writes to the Thessalonians saying, don't be alarmed, don't be shaken. And so Paul reminds them as he pastors them of what he taught them in person. And he expands now on what he wrote in that first Letter. He's not writing here a detailed timetable of the future, nor is he trying to give a complete description of the doctrine of what happens when Jesus returns. But if you are going to live rightly 
today, if the Thessalonians were going to live in their day as God intends, they needed to know what promises to look forward to, just as we today need to know what promises should we hold firmly to and hope in. I don't think any of us here this morning are tempted to the specific false teaching that affected the Thessalonian church. I've not heard any of you say, well, Jesus has already come back. But we are tempted to live as if Jesus has not made such promises. We would never say that. But the temptation we face is to live as if this world is our home. And all fulfillment, all goodness, all happiness comes from life in this world. So let's go to God's word, his inerrant word, his word of truth, and learn so that we might not be shaken or alarmed, but might stand firm, confident in who Jesus is. So our outline, four parts, apostasy and rebellion within the church, the man of lawlessness, who is responsible for the apostasy, and then Jesus's all-conquering power. So apostasy and rebellion within the church, the man of lawlessness, who is responsible for the apostasy, and Jesus's all-conquering power. So apostasy and rebellion within the church. Middle of verse 3. The day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion or apostasy comes first. And then Paul speaks of the coming of the man of lawlessness. We're going to deal with that in the next section. But now, the apostle says, verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only, who he, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So Paul is saying, while there is a coming in the future of a man of lawlessness, right now, he says, this rebellion, this apostasy, this mystery of lawlessness is at work. There's a coming manifestation in a person, but the power is already at work. What does he mean by that? Mystery of lawlessness is now at work. Remember that mystery in the New Testament is not like an Agatha Christie novel. It's not where these different clues are all presented to us and then we're supposed to figure out from the clues who killed the guy, was it the butler or whoever. Rather, mystery in the New Testament is when there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that is fulfilled in a surprising way and now that's revealed to us and we understand the Old Testament prophecies so much better because God has now fulfilled them in a way that was not anticipated, 
But we can go back in the Old Testament now and see, oh yes, look, 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 look. We understand how the way God has worked has fulfilled it. So there's no more to figure out. He's already revealed the mystery, right? And so remember how Paul speaks of this using the term mystery in Ephesians chapter 3. He refers to this mystery and says, verse 6 of Ephesians 3, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery is that God was always working through the people of Israel to bring all the nations to himself. Now, from our vantage point, we can look back and say, oh, yeah, look at that. Promise to Abraham, Revelation 12. We can look at Psalm 67. We can look at Isaiah 66. We can look at Psalm 95. Again and again and again and again, we see in the Old Testament this promise that all the nations are going to be in God's people. And God was calling Israel to be a light to the nations. But that was widely unobserved by the Jews through Jesus' day. So that was a mystery that then God fulfilled and made clear from a New Testament point of view. Well, what's the mystery here in 2 Thessalonians? The mystery is that within the visible manifestation of God's new covenant people, there will be a falling away as Satan works. Now, why is that unexpected? Why is that surprising? That it happened, obviously, in the Old Testament, right? God brings the nation out of Egypt, and immediately they start murmuring and grumbling, right? And many fall away. They go to the edge of the promised land, and they don't believe Caleb and Joshua, and they say, we want to go back to Egypt. And their bodies fall in the desert. You go into the time of the, of the judges, or in the time of the, the kingdoms, the monarchy in Israel and Judah, and you see the same thing. A lot of falling away from God's old covenant people. But you see, in the promise of the new covenant, God says, I'll write my law on their hearts. They will all know me from the least to the greatest. I will remember their sins no more. That sounds like there's no falling away, right? So how is it that within the visible manifestation of God's new covenant people, As in God's old covenant people, there's an apostasy, a falling away, as Satan works. What the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us is that there are those who look like believers, and among those who look like believers, some who think they are believers who are not believers at all. Judas is the most obvious one, right? 
When Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, it wasn't like Peter and James and John said, oh, yes, that guy, Judas, we always had our doubts about him. It must be him. No, not at all. They were surprised as much as it, with Judas as if it had been one of them. Or we read of Paul's colleague, Demas, traveled with Paul. And in 2 Timothy, Paul says, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. And Jesus himself says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of same word we see in 2 Thessalonians. You workers of lawlessness. So Paul warns the Thessalonians, he warns us, the mystery of lawlessness is at work now. There is a falling away within the church of those who look like they are believers, but they are not. As John will write, they went out from us because they were not of us. And so Paul says, don't be alarmed. Don't be shaken. Jesus warned us of this. We should have anticipated it from the experience of the kingdom of Israel. Hold fast to what you have been taught. The mystery of lawlessness is at work even today. There is apostasy and rebellion, a falling away, even within the church. Second heading, the man of lawlessness. So while the mystery of lawlessness is at work now, that mystery will culminate, says the apostle, in the appearing of a man of lawlessness before Jesus returns. For the moment... Now, you might laugh at that word moment because I'm talking about 2,000 years of a moment. The moment between Paul's writing this letter and today. For the moment, the man of lawlessness is restrained. Presumably by God's power. Paul says, you know what restrained him. It's got to be God who keeps him from appearing until the time that God wants him to appear. But at some point, the restraining ends, and verse 3, the man of lawlessness is revealed. Similarly, verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed. So at exactly the right time, God lets Satan manifest his power through this individual. Paul describes him beginning in the middle of verse 3, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is the ultimate, final, great apostasy, rebellion from within the church. He seems to be an exalted, false teacher who presents himself 
as a savior. He exalts himself instead of Jesus. Perhaps, therefore, he's the greatest of all the false Christs that we read about, that Jesus prophesied that many false Christs will come in the passage we read from Mark 13. We could see the same thing in Matthew 24. Paul says, proclaiming himself to be God. The word proclaiming is an unusual word for proclaiming. It's more normally displaying. And so New American Standard, NET, have translations that are similar. Displaying himself as God or something like that. At a minimum, he's assuming authority to himself that only Jesus has. And then Paul says he sits in the temple of God. Some commentators think this means he's sitting in a rebuilt Jewish temple. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.16, remember, we, believers, are the temple of the living God. And so some other commentators interpret this to mean he's sitting in the visible church. He's taking over the visible church. In any event, there's an ongoing apostasy from within the church that will culminate, there's ongoing apostasy within the church today that will culminate in a man of lawlessness who teaches contrary to God's law, displays himself as the one with all authority, and exalts himself instead of Jesus. And his appearance is by the work of Satan, and he's revealed at exactly the right time that God chooses. Third heading. Who is responsible for the apostasy? The man is a deceiver, verse 10, of those who are perishing, But why are they perishing? Who is responsible? Paul says, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Now remember, these are people within the visible church. They thus have access to the scriptures. They have access to the truth. But as with the rebels Paul discusses in Romans chapter 1... They see the truth, and then in Paul's wonderful phrase here, they refuse to love the truth. It's a a profoundly important phrase. He doesn't only say they refuse to accept the truth. They refuse to love the truth. Remember, Jesus says in his prayer in John 17, your word is truth. And he says, I am the truth. And so truth is not something we just intellectually accept or reject. This truth, the fundamental truth, 
Who Jesus is is something we love or hate. To reject the truth of who Jesus is is to hate him. It's not to take some stand which is solely intellectual. It is to hate the truth. And the only right way to respond to the truth of an incarnate God who came and lived the perfect life and died so that we might join him forever, we sinners who deserve his wrath, the only way rightly to respond to that is to embrace the truth and to love him who is truth. So they have refused to love the truth. So who is responsible for their rejection? Well, the man of lawlessness deceives them, but they are the ones who refuse to believe the truth that is clearly presented before their eyes. They choose to believe the lie instead, and they reject the one who loved them with an everlasting love. They are responsible. And yet, verses 11 and 12. After saying they refuse to love the truth, Paul says, therefore, and that therefore is important. One of my teachers liked to say what many teachers have said. Always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So you see, the man of lawlessness deceives. These folks refuse to love the truth which would have saved them. Therefore, God sends a delusion that they would be confirmed in their refusal. And thus, as we read elsewhere in Scripture, that their sin might be shown to be utterly sinful. And they are then condemned with all who reject Jesus, with all who reject the truth. And then what is the opposite of believing the truth? In this, in this verse, Paul says the opposite is having pleasure in unrighteousness. So they've refused to love the truth, and they've taken pleasure in unrighteousness. So the point is not only what do you believe is true, the point is what is your delight? What is your joy? Where is your satisfaction? So like Pharaoh in Exodus who hardens his own heart while God hardens his heart, just so all these who fall away from the church, all these who apostatize, all these who rebel are themselves responsible and therefore 
God deludes them further so that the real object of their joy is made clear, that their joy is in unrighteousness. So the warning for us is the warning that the Apostle John gives us in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Or as Jesus does, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man finds and covers up and goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Jesus is our joy. He must be our delight. He is the truth. And if we do not love that truth, we are headed in the direction of those who fall away and apostatize. Fourth heading, Jesus is all conquering power. So for these last 2,000 years, for that moment, Satan has been undermining the church from within, even as he attacks it from without. And yet, and yet, Jesus' church not only continues to exist, it grows and it thrives. Most of you have heard me give some of these statistics before, but there is a higher percentage of the population of the world today that are Bible-believing Christians than ever before in these last 2,000 years. There are more and more people groups that have an an indigenous, thriving, growing church than ever before in these last 2,000 years. The gates of hell cannot resist the advance of Jesus' church. And if we take a worldwide perspective, we see that that is true. Oh, yes, we can see that in areas amongst people groups that once upon a time had a big thriving church, that church is much smaller than it was before. That would be true of most of Europe. Just as 500 years ago, you could look back and say, well, North Africa was where the church was thriving in those early centuries after the resurrection of Jesus. And even 500 years ago, the church seemed to have been decimated in North Africa. Because one people group has a thriving, multiplying church in one century, there's no guarantee that that church is going to continue for centuries and centuries and centuries into the future. But God's church, Jesus' church, continues to advance from one people group to another. And so more and more are coming to faith, not just in numbers, but even in percentage of the world population. And so look at The second half of verse 8 once more. The Lord Jesus will kill the lawless one with the breath of his mouth. That's all it takes. All it takes. That great 
description of the return of our Lord Jesus that we read from Revelation 19. Right, so there's all these armies arrayed against Jesus, and Jesus comes riding on the white horse, and he's got all his armies behind him. But then there's no battle. It just ends. It just ends. Because there's no competition. The breath of his mouth, the sword coming out of his mouth, his enemies are defeated. And so as Paul says here in our passage, and he brings to nothing by the appearance of his coming, the man of lawlessness who seems so powerful, who set himself up, taking over the authority that only Jesus should have. Just the appearance of his coming deals with that enemy. So yes, many will fall away. Many will say, Lord, Lord, who never genuinely believed. Many of you know individuals that that would be true of. We pray it's not eternal. People who were played even important role in our lives, opening up the word of God to us or encouraging us, who since at least at this point in time appear to be of those who went out from us because they were not of us. Pray for them. Pray for them. But don't be discouraged by them. Jesus guards his church. Jesus will conquer through his church. His kingdom is forever. And he is advancing, bringing more and more people groups to faith in himself. Well, in conclusion, here again, the words of the Apostle Paul. Let no one deceive you in any way. Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? Verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold on to the traditions that you have been Traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Paul is saying, hold on to the truth. Hold on to the truth. You have it. I've spoken it to you. I've written you. Remember what you've been told. Remember what you've been read. And therefore, don't be deceived. Many who look like they are in the church will fall away. Don't be alarmed. Don't be among them. Be on your guard. Don't fall for Satan's deception. That's Paul's message. Now, It is easy to hear this, to read this chapter, and then to say, okay, we need to stand firm 
This is what I know from the word. And therefore, anyone who disagrees with me about these things is among those who are falling away. And we have to get rid of such people and warn people about them. Anyone who disagrees with me must be a heretic. And that's another way that Satan deceives us, to try to get us. He, he, Satan is happy if we ignore heresy within the church, and Satan is happy if we're all trying to say, okay, this person's a heretic, this person's a heretic, this person's a heretic. He wins either way. We are going to disagree with other genuine believers, genuine believers, Those that, say, that Jesus holds in his hand and Satan cannot snatch them out of his hand. We are going to disagree with other genuine believers about some matters. Even within Desiring God Community Church, we are going to disagree about some matters of interpretation. And we can give one another grace. We can recognize that each one of us is fallible. You know, Peter himself tells us that there are some things in the Apostle Paul that are hard to understand. If there are things in the Apostle Paul's writings that are hard for Peter to understand, it's not surprising that we're going to disagree about some of those things that the Apostle Paul wrote. And not only the Apostle Paul, other parts of Scripture. As Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, there are some who oppose us whom we must gently instruct. The person may just need instruction, love, pastoral care, perseverance, and prayer. And so that's our first response. If we hear people say things that are wrong... Well, one, we might be wrong in our interpretation, so we should think about that, consider that, pray about that, go back to the scriptures, see if these things are true. And our initial response should be, give this person grace. Look at the word together. In some cases, agree to disagree. But we must, must, must stand firmly on the central message of the gospel, as Paul tells us, especially in verses 15 and 17 here. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We must stand firmly on the authority of Scripture, knowing that our minds are very fallible. And these truths about God, about mankind, about the source of fulfillment, we cannot divine, we cannot understand them apart from his revelation and his spirit working in us. And so we have to stand on the authority of Scripture, on the fallenness of man, all man, on the, lost, uh, the lostness of all mankind, on salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. We must stand on the return of Jesus, which is yet to come. 
on the condemnation, on the destruction of his enemies, and on the blessing of his people in their gathering to him. And standing on those truths, having initially given folks grace who disagree with those central truths, if they prove to be unteachable, if they continue in their rejection of these central truths, then, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, have nothing to do with them. So our initial response is not, okay, let's try to root out all the heretics. Our response is love, accept, grace, and only come to that conclusion when it's proved through their continued rejection of the central truths of the gospel. So believe that gospel even now. Acknowledge that the world is alluring and the world is trying to squeeze us into its mold. Confess your own tendency to rebel. Confess your unbelief. Plead with God to help that unbelief and to open your eyes to the truth and to work in your affection so that you love that truth and love Jesus. Call upon God to save you by the sacrifice of Jesus and then hold on to that confidence firm to the end even as you spur one another on to love and good works. Satan is mighty. He is powerful. But Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And so look to him and love his appearing. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word, for your gospel, for your truth. Hear our prayers now as we respond to what you wrote through the Apostle Paul. And please, Father, answer our prayers. Confirm us in your truth.